So it's wonderful to be here. Uh, thank you so much to Gareth, and I've been getting to know Gareth and then Lara. I was fortunate enough to be in London earlier this week as well. Um, and there is this long uh, history with this uh, church. And uh, so the story goes that 20 plus years ago, uh, Ken McBride wrote to Clive Calver, who was then head of the Evangelical Alliance, and said, you really need to open an office in Northern Ireland and do something here. And Clive Calver, as was his way, wrote back and went, Dear General Secretary for Northern Ireland, in a letter to Ken, and, and basically appointed him <laughs> um, as a side role that he was in charge of it. And that has grown, and we now have an office and a small team. And uh, just to start, like we're a membership organization. We, they, they, the reason for that um, is that we have churches, we have organizations, and we have individuals. And really, that allows us to do two things. It really allows us to go out into the public square and say we represent a range of voices. It's not just that two of us came up with an idea in an office. We go and consult and we engage with church leaders and with our members and others. And then we get to say we represent the tens and hundreds of thousands, in fact, of evangelicals across the UK. There's about two million evangelicals in the UK. Some of you might be intrigued to know about a quarter now within the black majority churches in the UK. So it's a really diverse and interesting and energizing space. And uh, we're a membership organization. That's how we resource ourselves. So there's, there's leaflets like this outside, and I'll be out there at the end. Love you to think if it's something you would love to join and support us in for as little as three pounds a month and support the work of EA. But we're so thankful for the friendship and the relationship that this church has with us as an organization. Um, and I love getting to work for Evangelical Alliance. I'm a repentant lawyer. That's what I trained in. I think I saw one of my old Dundee uh, friends here. Uh, that's where I studied, uh, worked as a barrister for five years, and then I've repented of my ways, and uh, now I get to lead this work. Went off and studied in Regent College in Vancouver in Canada, and uh, sort of combined that law and theology. And I'm passionate about the public square. I love Jesus, and I want people to meet him. I love the church, and I want to help it to thrive. And then we love the public square, and want to help people to flourish within that. So I want to begin with a little story, and then begin to look at this kind of question of, I think it's supposed to be what determines you. I changed it slightly to who are you, but this sense of identity in this moment. So there's a story I've told that there's a transcript of a radio conversation of a naval exchange between the Americans and the Canadians off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. And the radio conversation was released by the chief naval operations officer later that month. This is the way it went. The Americans said this, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. The Canadian said, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no, I say again, you divert your course. The Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, two cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north, that's 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. The Canadians, this is a lighthouse, your call. (laughs) I suspect it's not true, but it's such a great story, mainly because it's the Canadians and the Americans, and it's just so good on all sorts of levels. But uh, I wonder if you ever feel like the lighthouse in that moment, like nobody is listening Like sometimes we're a voice and we're throwing out a kind of a light beam out and the response is this really harsh. No, you divert, you change. Sometimes it can feel almost overwhelming as the waves come up against us. And right at the core, I think there is this question of who are you? 
we were doing a, a leaders' events once, and this lady came and she said, I want you to turn to your neighbor and ask them that question, and they've got one minute to answer. And in the face of it, that feels like an easy question. We said, no, I don't want to tell them what you do. It's not about who you're related to. It's not any of this stuff. Who are you? It's actually very difficult for a minute to try and say, well, who are you? What, what, what are you passionate about? Or what makes you tick? Or who do you love? St. Augustine says that we are what we love. Like, who are you at the core? If you strip everything else away, who are you? And it feels like we're experiencing an identity crisis as a culture. Uh, we, I would have said we were experiencing one around Brexit. I think we're just bored of Brexit now. But, I mean, it's said that Nigel Farage's new party might get more votes than Conservative and Labour put together. And we're divided along the remain or leave kind of lines. Within our own culture, there's a talks process has restarted, but we still have the ongoing question, are you British, are you Irish, are you Northern Irish? What is our identity in our local culture? Then we have questions around sex and gender in our culture. Are you male? Are you female? Are you other? Would you prefer not to say? Questions of sexuality, which are much less about relationship and often more about identity. I wonder how important denominationalism still is. Is it important that you're known as a Presbyterian? What about class that sort of seemed to drift away but is re-emerging and coming back again? And so we have all sorts of identity markers, all sorts of boxes that we like to either be put in ourselves or we put other people in. There's this notion of identity politics raising its head. And we keep wanting to put people into smaller and smaller boxes and categories Politics used to be about what you could unite around. What's the sort of platform that you could get the most number of people to rally behind? But it now seems to be about breaking down into smaller and smaller subgroups around different little identity markers. So somebody says, well, you're a woman, you can't understand or represent me as a man. You're black, you can't understand me as somebody who's white. Or you're gay or straight, you can't understand who I am. Or the LGBT movement is now beginning to break into separate groups internally. The trans can't understand what it is to be a lesbian or vice versa. Working class can't understand the middle class. And so we break into smaller and smaller and smaller groups until you eventually say, well, I'm only going to identify with people who are white and middle class and male and Liverpool supporters just because they're popular again and whatever. And down and down and down we go into tiny categories of kind of one rather than trying to unite around a platform that the most number of people might come around. And so we have this fracturing identity politics going on. And it bleeds into social media spaces. I'm reading a book at the minute called Zucked by, uh, about Mark Zuckerberg and about Facebook. Facebook has 2.2 billion users. And in the book, it compares it to some of the world's major religions. And then it says, actually, there's 1.4 billion daily users. I was thinking, actually, most of the world's major religions, and I'm sure Christiana would be very happy if 1.4 of our billion of our adherents were actually daily users doing their prayer and doing their Bible reading rather than the time they spent on Facebook. And the concern that was raised in the book and then again in an article in the papers this week is that it's largely controlled by one person. Although any of you may have shares in Facebook, whether you know it or in your pension fund unbeknown to you, and it's diversified in its ownership, actually Mark Zuckerberg has a golden share, a golden voting right. So he has 60% of control of that company. And he's a very hands-on leader. So 2.2 billion people's lives are being very directly influenced by one person. That's just unhealthy for democracy. 
And the book was interesting on another level. It was talking about the way computers had changed over the last few years. And it said in the, the 50s and 60s, we had these big mainframe computers, these huge supercomputers. You had these guys in white coats and little punch cards, and, and everything was in about that one computer. And then they began to diversify, and IBM and others came and began to give computers into business organizations, and they had computers. And then slowly, as we get into the 90s, then we've had much more personal computers. Now nearly all of us are sitting with a computer in our pocket, essentially, the, the, the power of one of those old mainframe computers in our pockets. And I was thinking of the analogy of church over the years, where we've had like the mainframe computer, the centralized single church, highly vertically integrated, as he would have said in this book, where it was all quite hierarchical and controlled what we did. And then we've seen the rise of different denominational streams and network churches. And now, in a way, it's like everybody with a phone in their pocket. Everybody has their own version of their faith. I'm going to pick and choose a little bit from here and a little bit from there. And here's my favorite author, and I worship the worship music from these guys and a little bit of this guy's theory and some theology from over here and put them together. And even when it comes to identity around our faith, you don't get figures like J.I. Packer, who used to be one of my lecturers at Regent, who was one of those figures who 20, 30 years ago, he said, have you read Knowing God? And nearly everybody said yes. Or John Stott. Now even I say to my brothers, have you read this? They're like, no. Have you read this other person? And we all have these tiny little streams in which we we swim about in, even in terms of our faith. It raises big questions for us as Christians living in this complex world. And so I want to read from Colossians and look a little at Colossians chapter 1. Some of you are familiar with Colossians. I'm going to read a little bit of it from the message. Um, I had the privilege of studying under Eugene Peterson. I like sometimes how he catches things a little bit differently. Um, so sometimes if you're very familiar with the NIV or NRSV or another, it's, it's just interesting to read it in the message and see how he's picked up a theme a little bit differently. So we're going to turn to Colossians chapter 1 just in a moment, because I say in, in some ways things have got more complicated, but actually Paul reminds us here that in many ways they haven't. He's writing to the church in Colossae, and Colossae had this been, been this great city. It had been really prominent, but by the time Paul writes a letter, it had turned into a bit of a second-rate town. It wasn't such a, a kind of cool place to be. And the book of Colossians is a pretty simple message. It's pointing people towards Jesus, and it's pointing people away from the empty human philosophies of the day. So it seems to me to be just about as relevant as ever. So in Colossians 1, I'm going to read from uh, 13 through to, I think, um, where am I going? 23. <laughs> Colossians 1, 13 to 14 says this. These verses might come up. God rescued us from dead-end alleys and dark dungeons. He set us up in the kingdom of the Son He loves so much. The Son who got us out of the pit we were in, got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. So the first thing is Paul's just kind of framing where he's about to go. He, he's turning us into kingdom people. God has taken us out of the dead-end alleys and dark dungeons. And then he begins to unpack this incredible kind of gospel summary, verses 15 onwards. We look at this sun and we see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in Him and finds His purpose in Him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. 
Thou lovest. But he was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade. He is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything and everyone. So spacious is he, this is Jesus, so roomy that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, because of his blood that poured down from the cross. And you yourselves, he's writing to the, to the Colossians, but it's as applicable to us, you yourselves at Orangefield are a case study in what he does. At one time, you all had your backs turned to God, thinking rebellious thoughts of him, giving him trouble every chance you got, but now by giving himself completely at the cross, actually dying for you, Christ brought you over to God's side and put your lives together, whole and holy in his presence. You don't walk away from a gift like that. You stay grounded and steady in the bond of trust, constantly tuned into the message, careful not to be distracted or diverted. There is no other message, just this one. Every creature under heaven gets this same message. And I, Paul, am a messenger of this message. It's a fantastic summary of the gospel. It's just this incredible, so spacious is he, so roomy. He's putting together all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe in vibrant harmonies. Why? Because of his death poured out at the cross. And so sometimes we struggle to communicate the gospel well in this culture. I don't know if you've seen some of the different ways we do it. There's an image coming up, and this is sometimes how we've communicated the gospel, a bridge to life. And so you have this kind of image, there's, there's man or humanity and there's God and there's a gap between the two. And so how are we going to bridge that? And the cross is put in that gap. And it works to an extent, but here's the thing, we read left to right, that's just the way we're wired to do it. So when you see that image, what, what are you thinking? Well, the man's going to move across to God. And while Jesus is the bridge, it's all about my action as an individual person, I'm going to move towards God. That's a funny way to communicate the gospel. It's not really what the Bible says. God is inviting us into his kingdom, we've just read. Here's another way in which we sometimes tell the story. In fact, just before I go there, here's what I would have said as an eight-year-old, I invite Jesus into my heart. Again, that's a strange piece of language. That's perfectly fine as an eight-year-old, but is that really what's happening? I invite Jesus into my heart. What's the Bible really saying? He says there's an ongoing God story. It's been going on over generations, and it's been going on across cultures, and I am invited into that story. I don't bring Jesus in on my terms and conditions. He invites me to step into his ongoing story of the world. And it shapes and transforms me. You see, we've individualized it quite a lot. So this image talks about over the last 1,850 years, we've communicated the God story in this way. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We've communicated this larger story of what's going on. And then in around 1850, 1860, just due to all sorts of kind of social factors, with the Industrial Revolution, people weren't going to church as much. And so what began to arise were kind of the gospel missions and events. And so rather than going week over week to church and learning the larger story of the gospel, we began to put on these events where you come in for one night. And what began to happen is, it's too much information for me to communicate to Gareth all of creation and all of restoration. So I shrink the story down and because of my lawyer, I like doing this. I say, Gareth, you're really bad. You all know that to be true because you now know him. 
And I like that because I'm a lawyer and I've created a problem. Why do I like it? Because I've got a solution in the back pocket. But it's okay, Jesus died for you and rose again and so offers forgiveness of sins. So I'm communicating the fall and the redemption piece, but I've begun to narrow the story down. And so it's all about Gareth as an individual coming to know Jesus. And that's true as far as it goes, but we've lost something of the creation and the restoration. But then apparently culturally now, it's not acceptable for me to say to Gareth, you're really bad. I find it relatively easy, but apparently that's not what you're supposed to do. So I don't say, Gareth, you're really bad. I just say, hey, Jesus loves you. And that's so thin. That's such a kind of reduction of the gospel. It doesn't really work. I mean, he might buy it for a few weeks, for a few months, but when anything comes along, there's nothing there. There's no depth to that. It's such a shallow story of the gospel. Jesus loves you. There's nothing to it. It doesn't work as a story. And in the process, what we lost was the richness of the creation and the restoration of all things. And so the cultural historians say we lost our cultural impact as Christianity because we'd individualized everything to saving the soul and Gareth's soul was going to float off to heaven and, and, and float around on a cloud with his angel wings playing a harp. None of which, by the way, is in the Bible, but all of which is imagery we've got in our heads. That somehow we've become a Christian, we're sitting twiddling our thumbs and we're waiting for the day when we go to heaven till we get our own cloud and our pair of angel wings. It's mad stuff. I see some of you grinning because that's the kind of stuff we were raised on. And that has no traction because we have no purpose in the here and now. Why have we become a Christian? We're just waiting until we die. And that's the moment we get saved to go to heaven. We've got the golden ticket to escape. I'm a Christian. Get me out of here. But I have no purpose in the here and now. I have no sense of identity and meaning in that kind of shrunken gospel story. Next slide shows this. When, this, when our story, when your story connects with God's story, it leads to a great story. When we understand that we are invited into this larger story of the world, that we are becoming part of a community of people who have been transformed by that story, that's a game changer. Rather than I'm inviting Jesus into my heart, he's going to save my soul that will go off and float into heaven. It's not what the Bible says, and it's not going to engage our culture. So we need a richer and fuller understanding that Paul is giving us here as he writes to the Colossians and the Colossian church about the gospel. So I want to think about three identity implications of that around image, around idolatry, and around injustice. I want to think of us in terms of image first, just looking at this idea about image. So in Colossians 1.15, it says this, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And as we inhabit the fuller story, we are to understand our role and His role in light of creation. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Genesis 1, that we are reminded that we are made in the image of God. Male and female, he created us. We are image bearers. Not the same as Jesus. Don't hear me say that for a second now. Jesus is the image of God itself, but we are image bearers. We carry something of the image of God. And not just us as Christians. Everybody is made in the image of God. It's an incredible idea that every single person is a divine image bearer. It's an idea that's unique to Christianity. The idea of equality comes from Christianity. You don't get it from any other worldview. People say, oh, our democracy is built on the Greco-Roman world, and we take from that. Guess who had rights in the Greco-Roman world? About 10% of males. Nobody else had. You don't get equality from that system. 
If you go to some of the other Eastern religions, you go to somewhere like India, you've got a caste system. You've got the Brahmin caste at the top and you've got the Dalit caste at the bottom. And the whole idea is if you work really hard as a Dalit, sweeping the streets and do that as well as you can, you might, if you're fortunate, be reincarnated on up the system. That's a great system to keep people in a caste idea. And it doesn't have any equality fundamentally built into it. Equality isn't a Christian idea. It comes from Judeo-Christian ideas because everybody has dignity because every single person is a divine image bearer. No other worldview gets you to that idea. It's unique to Christianity. And there are some consequences of that as we think about image. Where do we look, firstly? Where do we look? Heads down or heads up? We were at the Alpha Leadership Conference and Nikki Gumbel was talking about this heads down generation that we live in. If you travel on a train or a bus or if you just walk the street, heads down generation. I get the train quite often up and down to Belfast. Everybody's heads down. As soon as you get on, boom, we're down on our phones. Heads down and heads in. Because if you go into a bookshop, what's the, what's the big section? The self-help section. And not only is that just misdirecting people, it's not just unfortunate, it's actually dangerous. Because we look inwards for solutions that we can't possibly bring to ourselves. We can't carry the weight of expectations we're putting on ourselves. Salvation is not found down and in. Salvation is only going to be found when we look up and out towards God and towards others. Colossians 1.18 says he is towering far above everything and everyone. So spacious is he and so roomy that everything of God finds its proper place in him. We can't bear the weight that we put on ourselves. And I love some of the old architecture and geography where the churches had towers and had steeples. And so the idea was to tell you where they were. You could look up above the skyline and see the one thing that stood up. And it was also pointing you always upwards. Now, I know a little bit of that was sometimes about command and control, but largely the idea was good. This is where the church is, and it's always pointing up towards God. And we live in a generation and a time when we're just obsessed with looking down and in rather than up and out. But it also impacts, not just in terms of how we look in terms of image, but how we see ourselves. We live in such an image-conscious generation that it makes it difficult to understand what it is to be an image-bearer. We live in a world that is image-rich, YouTube and Instagram. Apparently, if you like words, you're old. So my interns tell me because I like words. I always want to read something and skim over it. And they're like, no, no, you have to watch this video. I don't want to watch a video. You can't skim a video. <laughs> anyway, so they, we're, we're in an image-rich society. And image is a good thing, but you can get overwhelmed by the level of image we have. And we also live in a, in a time of kind of hyper-reality. Coke says it's even better than the real thing. And that seems to be the world that we live in where we have all these images that are even better than reality. You see, the, the photoshopped model doesn't actually look like that and never could look like that without all the lighting and all the makeup and all the filters put on afterwards. If you're on Instagram, and, and if you understand what that is, you can explain to me later entirely. My, my interns keep trying to tell me this probably. But anyway, you get all these filters. So you take a picture of yourself and then you get this app that filters and makes you good looking. It's an amazing thing. It puts makeup on you if you want. It puts all sorts of things on you. There's hope for some of us yet. Exactly. And so we see an estimated 5,000 adverts coming at us every single day, they reckon. But it's hit ridiculous levels. So you read a lot. If you're you're reading the papers, you'll read about some of the impact that pornography is having. It's setting unrealistic expectations. And so young people who who are now enmeshed so much in this have no idea what a real relationship looked like looks like, and no relationship can meet that expectation, 
And so all the statistics will tell you the way as a society, this might shock you, cover your ears if you're sort of not ready for this, we are having less sex and we're less happy with the sex that we're having. The sexual revolution promised more sex and more happiness, and the reality is we're having neither because the level of expectation is so ridiculous, hyper-reality, because so many people are watching pornography. And in so many ways, we've got this hyper-real world that you can't meet up to. So the pictures we put on Instagram are the best moments of our life as it is, and then we touch them up and make them look even better, and then everybody else goes, oh, I want that, but, but, but my life's not like that. Well, nor is the other person's. It's, it's a snapshot of a tiny, hyper-realized version of their life. And so we're so image-conscious that it's difficult to be image-bearers that we've been called to be. That's who we are in this moment. Genesis 1 again. We are made in the image of God. We are joint heirs with Christ, Paul reminds us in Romans 8. Not the same as, not on the same level, but, but we share in some of that inheritance as image bearers. You need to move from being heads down to heads up, from being image conscious to being image bearers. Then I want to move from the, the consequence of, of the image is towards idols and idolatry. See, Paul goes on to warn the Colossian church in, in chapter 2 about where this can lead to. Chapter 2, verse 8 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in Him, who is the head of every ruler and authority." You see, image bearers is what we're supposed to be, and idols are what are all around us. And we think, well, we're not going to fall for that, if you fire on the next slide, I think. Um, you know, we're, we're not daft enough to kind of have a little graven image in our, in our living room. We wouldn't have some sort of image in the corner of our living room that we would spend half an hour each day sitting in front of and worshiping. We wouldn't have one of those things. It's certainly not going to be 30 centimeters high. It's going to be like 47 inches. Um, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have that. So we think, well, but idols, that doesn't mean anything else. We, we don't fall for idolatry. But what Paul is saying and what the Bible consistently tells us is that God made one thing in his image, as human beings. We carry the image of God and nothing else does. So you don't have a little carved image and you need to respect those who do carry the image of God, which is every other human being. That's what gives us our humanity and our dignity. And so Paul goes on to expand what idolatry can look like. He said it can look like empty philosophies. Yeah, we're not going to carve that silly little statue or idol, but we might fall for empty philosophies. We might worship or give our allegiance to these ideas. There's an ongoing kind of story in the news around Israel Folau and Billy Vanapola and the, the rugby players, some of you may have seen, and around their faith and how they're expressing that. And it has implications on freedom of religion and speech, but what interests me in this moment is that Stuart Barnes, the former rugby player and commentator, said this in an article right when the story broke. He said, I always loathed the way those islanders formed a circle post-match and gave their praises to what I regard as a fabrication. You sense the real dislike he had? This is the Pacific Island rugby players who formed a little prayer circle after a match and prayed to God. I loathed the way those islanders formed a circle post-match and gave their praise to what I regard as a fabrication. And he went on to say, But I am a child of the Enlightenment, fortunate enough to have the benefit of a reasonable education. Oh, lucky me, it's not those poor islanders' fault. They have no idea what they're doing, praying to some fabrication. 
I'm enlightened. I'm rational. I'm reasonable. I understand the world. If that was true, you wouldn't loathe somebody. It's, it's the sense of real dislike to what they're doing. He is fearful of what's going on. And he is captive to an empty philosophy. Science can't tell him who he is, why he exists. It's a wonderful thing. It can tell us how certain things happened. It doesn't give us a sense of purpose. It doesn't give us a sense of meaning. And in that little exchange, I saw an empty philosophy of this world. My friends aren't leaving Christianity or choosing not to come to church because they've got some little carved out statue in the corner of their living room apart from their TV or their computer or Netflix. But the issue is empty philosophy. Some of them are captive essentially to humanism that we as human beings can sort out our own problems or atheism. They believe there is no God. More of them are probably captive to individualism and consumerism and materialism. I buy stuff. I'm not saying it's always bad, but most of my law friends are working to get a nicer house, take their kids on a nicer holiday, maybe get them into a better school or better education or or get some better stuff for them. They basically work so they can buy stuff. Individualism, consumerism, materialism. It's all about what they can get. And that's the kind of empty philosophy that has captured them. So we need to be really careful of these things. The third sort of idol I put up there is is, in terms of the issue of transgender. We've launched a resource around this. And the reason I'm talking about it here is if we flick to the next slide, is this series of isms. Okay, so people say to me sometimes, the transgender movement seems to have come from nowhere. How did this thing just hit our society? I said, it didn't come from nowhere. You can't read that slide, and that's a good thing. That's full of what I call isms. (laughs) It's this crazy sort of streams that have played into it. I don't want to talk about them in detail, but I was driving down to Donegal one day, and there was just this kind of, or down to Sligo, actually, there was this kind of raging river down in the valley. And it was forceful, it was powerful, and it was impacting the banks, and you could see the bank crumbling under the force of that river. And you see that when a river is in full flow, it can carve new pathways down through the valley. And when we see the river at that moment, we're like, wow, what is that? Why did we cross that? That is so powerful. What can we do with it? And that to me is a sign of the transgender movement in some senses. If you go back upstream a little bit, you begin to see little streams coming into play that have fed into that. And suddenly at this moment, those streams have combined with forceful effect. Now, just want to be clear about there's massive pastoral implications on this. But what we're not doing today is looking at the scientific or medical evidence when it comes to transgender. What we are being driven by is ideologies. We say a lot more about this in this resource. It's available outside. Uh, please do take one because this is a big issue. What I want to do is as an illustration, there are pastoral implications for somebody who's gender dysphoria. We need to wrestle with that. We need to engage with that person at the point of need. But There is an underlying ideology that you will also read about in the papers around this. It's driven by a relativism that says there's no absolute authority in this world anymore. I can do what I like. It's driven by an individualism that says I get to write my own script and do what I like. It's driven by a sort of post-structuralism that just wants to deconstruct all language of meaning. It's driven by what we call queer theory that says we reject anything that's heteronormative, i.e. anything to do with heterosexuals. It's driven by a kind of cultural Marxism that says, you know what? The family underpins Western democracy. We don't like that. Let's get rid of marriage. Let's get rid of family. And let's get rid of society. It's driven by a consumerism that says, I can take on what I like. You think that doesn't bleed into our churches? I said to people, how was church? They say, ah, I didn't like the worship. I didn't think that guy was very good at preaching. Hopefully you won't say that. What's, what's, but what's the thing? I didn't like it. I didn't get anything from it. God didn't show up and meet me. Because we've been trained to be consumers, and so we come into church and we say, what can I get? These kind of philosophies are impacting all of us in so many ways. 
We are to be image bearers. We think we don't have any idols in our lives. And Paul is saying to the church in Colossians, beware of the empty philosophies. They're everywhere. They're catching. That's why it's difficult to live in this cultural moment. There are a huge number of empty philosophies they're being taught in our schools. They're in our education system. They underpin our media and the books that we read and the movies that we go and see. And then we wonder why it feels like we're a lighthouse standing and there's a ship and there's waves and there's things crashing against us. And finally and quickly, I just want to speak very briefly about the idea of injustice that follows from that. Why injustice? Why do I want to touch on that as I close? Well, idolatry leads to injustice. In fact, you can't have injustice, I want to suggest, without idolatry. Because idolatry displaces God. When we have an idol, we say, God, you're no longer in the place you should be. But it also undermines what it is to be a human being and to have dignity. Because the only idols, the only image bearers, same Hebrew word, are human beings. See what God was doing there when he put the people in the garden? He said, you will be my image bearers. Same word for idol. You will be my representatives. You, as human beings, are. Don't put anybody else in. So when we worship or pledge allegiance to idols, not only do we displace God, we fundamentally undermine what it is to be a human being. And that's what leads to injustice. You can't commit an act of injustice unless you've undermined somebody's humanity, their human dignity, their right to be an image bearer in that moment. I don't care on whatever level you want to put that, be it jihad or abortion, abusive creation, human trafficking, pornography, tax evasion, whatever act of injustice to get there, You have to worship someone or something else. We make ourselves God or we pledge allegiance to some other God and then we devalue every other human being as a consequence of that. And it leads us to acts of injustice. And we need people who fight against injustice in this world and we have social justice warriors and that is a good thing largely. But what they're doing often is dealing with the symptoms and we need to go upriver and see what the causes are. And we have insights as Christians that say, do you know what? To commit an act of injustice, you will have committed some sort of act of idolatry. And that's not language we use in our culture, but we need to be savvy and say, well, what did you do behind that that allowed you to so devalue this other human being that you abused them and misused them? You pledged your allegiance to somebody or something else. Another God, yourself, you became so selfish that you could misuse other people. David Foster Wallace is an American writer, and he says this, There is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God like JC or Yahweh, remember he's not a Christian, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. It's the truth, he says. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant or bury you. When we fail to understand that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and that we are image bearers made in the image of that God too, what follows is idolatry and injustice. The crisis, in a way, of this world and this cultural moment that we live in is not a surprise because we can see behind some of the factors that have led to it. So as a close, returning to that idea of identity, who are you? Paul says in Colossians 2.15, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. 
He has disarmed these philosophies, these rulers of this age. He is victorious. Sometimes we as Christians live on the back foot. People sometimes ask me to come and speak about the kind of persecution narrative in the UK that we're in. And oh, like woe was us poor Christians. And we live as if we've been defeated. Jesus won already. Like he's victorious at the cross. Death has been defeated. We know the outcome. To use an illustration from the the World War, we live between D-Day and VE Day. After D-Day, it was certain who was going to win World War II, but it was another six or eight months before VE Day when it was declared. We live in the in-between. We know who's won. The decisive battle has been fought. We live in the in-between time. The analogy Paul uses is of pregnancy. You can see it. The pangs are there. You can see, if, if you know somebody who's pregnant, you know the baby's there. You can see it sometimes kicking. It, it's, it's there. It's a certainty. But you haven't yet got to birth. And we live in the in-between times, the now and the not yet. But Jesus has disarmed the isms that we just talked about, the powers and principalities of this world. He is victorious over them. And in Colossians 1, 27, he says this, the mystery of the gospel, essentially, in a nutshell, is this, Christ in you. So therefore, you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. It's that simple. Christ is in you. Who is our identity? Jesus indwells us, inhabits us. The person who is victorious over death, the person who is before all things, who created everything, in whom, through whom everything was created, is in us through the power of His Holy Spirit living in and through us. When our story connects to the God story, it does lead to a great story, not just for us, but for others. Before everything, He knew you. He created each and every one of you. He died for you, bringing you onto God's side. And He's putting all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe back together again. He has a purpose For each one of us, we are not defined by our circumstances. Christ is in us so that we can share in His glory. We want to live into that on this last slide just by reading more about Him, by reading the Bible, by engaging with it. Like, I want to know the God story. I want to read it to my kids using the Jesus Storybook Bible or whatever you have by just digging into this Word, you know, listening to it, chewing it over, getting off Netflix for a season and saying, I'm going to take time in this word, this story that has defined my life. And praying, you're doing the 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world. I find prayer hard. Chant to Pete Gregg about it. He's just written that book, How to Pray. And he's just taking some basic steps because many people find it hard. But we need to be praying. We need to be listening to God, talking to Him, hearing from Him. We were at this leadership conference and a guy called John Tyson was there. He's a preacher in New York. I think he's one of the best preachers in the world at the minute. But what struck me was the amount of time he spends in prayer and contends for that city. He talked about the early days where he was actually paid to be a church planter, but he had no people to look after. Most people, it's the other way around. They've got all the people and they aren't getting paid yet. And he's like, I had all this time and I just walked eight hours a day around the city praying for New York. He's right beside Times Square in New York and having an incredible impact on that city. But he's just praying for it and contending for it. My praying and contending for my family, for this nation, for this community, for this church. And finally, sharing. You've got this event coming up with J. John, just one. The whole point, the next slide says, of Christianity is that it offers a story, which is the story of the whole world. It is public truth. This quote from Tom Wright just really gets me. Privatized faith. There's no such thing as a privatized faith. So many people think, well, if I'm doing well, I'll maybe do my quiet time and head into work. And I'll have this kind of private relationship with Jesus and I'll try and get through the day. 
But if this God story is true, it's true for everybody. It has public implications. That's what Paul's telling the people in the Colossian church. Forget about the empty philosophies. I've already defeated those. He's not saying it's going to be easy, but he is saying so spacious is Jesus. There is room enough for everyone because of his death and the blood poured out on the cross. As we close, here's what I'd love you to do. I'd love us just each of us just to kind of sit where we are, to bow our heads and just to close our eyes for a moment. We're just going to pray for a moment. The worship band are going to come up to help us close the service now. But I just want to, if you have heard something about Jesus for the first time and you're saying, I want to encounter Jesus. I want to meet him. I want to give my yes to Jesus. I've heard for the first time that he is spacious enough and roomy enough and he has space for me. And he wants to put the broken and dislocated pieces of my life back together. And if you want to begin that journey today, or perhaps really a fresh and in a new and meaningful way, then I'm going to ask everybody just to keep their heads bowed and their eyes closed. And I know this is a big ask, but I'm going to ask you just while others are heads bowed, including the worship band just in this moment, if that's you and you're saying for the first time or in a new and meaningful way, you want to reconnect with Jesus, just put your hand up very quickly and then you can take it back down again. Just saying, I want in this moment to take that step of faith and say yes to Jesus in a new or a fresh way. I'm just going to give you a moment. Just put your hand up and you can take it straight back down again. And then what I will do, I'm going to ask all of us to stand for a moment as we close. If you all want to just stand together, the worship band are going to begin to play in the background. Just as we stand and as we close, I want to ask us all to look at how we might respond. Because it can feel like the ships are ordering us what to do and there's nowhere to go and, and it's difficult to be a lighthouse. But I also want us to be more than that. I want us to be a port or a harbor in the storm that welcomes others in. So perhaps if you feel comfortable and you want to, you can put your hands out. Otherwise, maybe just bow your head very slightly and it's just a posture of receiving and saying, yeah, I want to I wanna receive from you, God. I want you to speak into my life in this moment. Just as we pray, Father, I pray for those who want to be a port or a harbor in the storm for friends and family who are struggling in this moment. I pray that we will be a place of welcome for them. I pray, Father, for those of us who need to look up in this moment, and perhaps you even physically want to do that right now and say, Father, I want to know that I'm an image bearer. I know you've declared it, Father. I want to hear that spoken over my life, that you're a daughter and a son of the King. You're a daughter and son of the King of Kings. And Father, I pray that you will forgive us when we are more worried about our image than bearing your image, that you will help us to lay down our idols. I just want to pray particularly for those of you who are in kind of more public roles of leadership. Perhaps you're on the front line as a teacher or a nurse. Perhaps you're in a kind of government role in the civil service in some variety. Father, I just pray for those now who find incredible pressure on the roles that they're in. Father, I pray for courage. I pray for grace. I pray that they will know the moment to be leaning on the grace pedal and know the moment to be leaning more on the truth and courage pedal. Father, we recognize that as a tough space and so I just pray now your blessing upon those who are standing in that public square in that way. And Father, finally I want to pray for parents. For those of us who are parents, Father, that we will take the time to pray for our kids, that we will take the time to speak life over them, that we will call out the gifting that we're beginning to see in them, Father, but also that we will not be fearful of the world around, 
that they are your children as well as our children. We want to present them and offer them into your hands, God. And we pray that you will help us as parents to navigate this world. We know it's tough, but we are part of communities. We're not trying to do this alone. And so I pray for this church at Orangefield, Father, that you will help them to be a community that stands against the tide and more than that offers a harbor and a port for others to come in. A community in which young people and children can be raised, Father, to not just survive in this culture, but to thrive and to bring others into relationship with Jesus. Father, we pray for this church. We pray for this neighborhood. We pray for the city of Belfast, Father, and we pray for this nation. You know that we need you more than ever in this nation. We contend for this place, Father. We call out on behalf of Northern Ireland. We love this place. For some of us, it's been our home all our lives. For others, this is a new place that we have come to, but it is still our home, and we love this place. And we know that parts of it are deeply broken. Father, we pray your forgiveness for any role that we have played in that, Father, but we pray for reconciliation. We've had a peace process, but we need a reconciliation process. Father, we pray for this nation. We pray for leaders, whether we agree or disagree with them. We pray for wisdom for them in this moment. Father, we pray that even though we may be skeptical of a talk process, that there can be some sort of breakthrough. And Father, we pray for church and community leaders and others, for Christians who are in this space, that we can give leadership, that we can give voice, that we can show new ways of doing things. Father, we pray for Gareth and Gary and others in this church, Father, as they take leadership. Father, we pray for the work of Alpha that breaks across divides and helps people encounter Jesus afresh. We pray for the event down at C.S. Lewis Square. We thank you for how Lewis was a world leader in leading people into relationship with you. And we pray as J. John comes that people may meet you afresh for the first time. Father, we pray that that may break down walls in this city and that we may see your kingdom come and your Holy Spirit poured out across Belfast afresh. Come, Holy Spirit, bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.